0: In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to continue looking at the Gospel of Mark. In particular, we're going to ask the question Who is Jesus? Who does Mark show us Jesus is? Is he God? Stick around and find out. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I am the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute of Catechesis and Evangelization. Today's episode, we're diving into the Gospel of Mark, and our approach to looking at Mark's Gospel is not going to be to take sort of one chapter at a time, read through it. You know, we're not imitating Bible in a year. (laughs) We're we're trying to do something a little bit different, Um, and in the Gospel of Mark, uh, I want to basically take a look at five big questions. This episode is going to focus just exclusively on one topic, one question. So the question is, who is Jesus? Who is he? In the last episode, I talked about the idea that the Gospels are ancient biographies. They give us the life of Jesus, So who is Jesus according to the gospel? And what I mean by that really is, is he God? There's actually a lot of people, um, surprisingly even in academia, who will insist on the fact that Jesus is not identified as the Messiah, Jesus is not identified as, you know, the Logos incarnate, as the second person of the Trinity, as God. At least that's not a, a, an original idea in the New Testament. Maybe it's a later development. So the, the most common thing you'll hear is that in the synoptics, or in, in Mark in particular, Jesus is just, a, you know, a teacher. Maybe he works some miracles, uh, but he's not God, and that's something you don't see till later in, for instance, the Gospel of John. And a lot of this goes into, you know, a lot of the arguments for that the, the delve into things about the dating of certain texts and communal authorship and all this sorts of stuff. Um, well, the, the approach that I want to take um, to answering the question of who is Jesus is to follow the text of Mark's gospel, and in particular to think about some of the Old Testament connections. So this is something that is also very, very just very important for Catholics is to, to see the unity of the Scriptures. One of my favorite passages from the Catechism talks about the fact that the uh, the, the Old Testament uh, is revealed in the New, and the New Testament is hidden in the Old. Uh, there's this this intrinsic relationship between understanding the Old Testament and being able to understand the New Testament. You really you've got to be able to do both of them. Um, so as we look at the Gospel of Mark and we think about the question of who is Jesus. What I want to suggest to you is that he reveals his identity as the Lord, as God, as a, the second person of the Trinity, through the things that he does and the things that he says. And sometimes it's he's doing something, and then someone questions him about it, and then he says something about it, and when we look at both of those, the, the doing and the saying, we get a much uh, clearer window into his own understanding of who he was, and his answers to other people who are looking at him and questioning the things that he's doing. So I want to start uh, first with this story from the second chapter of Mark's gospel. Um, it's Mark 2, verses 23 to 28. So I'm going to read this, these just five verses and then enter into showing you how this episode in Mark's gospel, helps to reveal to us who Jesus is and who he's claiming to be. So this is Mark chapter 2, beginning on verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the showbread, which it was not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the sabbath okay so that story i remember as a kid hearing that sometimes at mass and just being totally clueless um like a lot of the things i heard at mass as a kid what is, what is this talking about you know uh who are the pharisees what is the sabbath who's abiathar um what is showbread what is all this stuff going on uh, and this is one of the things that, that's really critical to, to help see is that you've got to be able to do more than just read these five verses to understand what Jesus is trying to do. So Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, a field of wheat on the Sabbath, and they are spotted by the Pharisees, who are always looking to spot somebody doing something that they're not supposed to do. And they say, hey, what are you doing? You, you, this is not lawful on the Sabbath for you to do this. So what are they accusing him of? First, they're accusing Jesus and his disciples of working on the Sabbath. So they're they're hungry and they're, they're picking grains um, and, and eating, and they're being accused essentially of harvesting, of doing some farming on the Sabbath day. Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest. You're not supposed to be doing, you know, your this sort of agricultural labor, uh, you know, cut it out. Like, don't you know you're not supposed to do that? And Jesus' answer is very, very significant if you get the context of what he's talking about. So he, he says to them, uh, you know, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And this is uh, one of the commentaries I was reading as I was preparing for this, noted it that this is a way of sort of, uh, it's it's making fun of or, you know, kind of just really sticking it to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are supposed to be scholars, right? Of of course, they should know the story of David that he's referring to. But he's sort of making fun of them, like, "Don't you know what David did? What's the story about David?" So this is actually in referring to this, referring to an episode in the first book of Samuel, one uh, one Samuel chapter twenty one. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, I'm not even going to read it. I'll just summarize. Basically, David is is uh, running for his life. He's on a military expedition. And he gets to uh, the high priest and is hungry, and he asks the high priest for some bread for him and his men. Now, the high priest says, you know, all I've got is the bread of the presence, which is sometimes translated as show bread. This is bread that was set in front of the Holy of Holies, right? And it was only lawful for the priests to eat it. But the high priest lets David and his, uh, his, his crew eat the bread of the presence. Why? Well, because David is priestly. He he is he is. That's one of the things you have to understand about 1 Samuel is that David acts as a priest. There's other places where he does that. David has a priestly identity, uh, maybe even a high priestly identity, right? Because he is going to transport the ark, and there's there's other moments where he acts as priest. So he is given permission to eat the bread of the presence because he's a priest. Now, Jesus, in in this sort of smart-aleck remark to the Pharisees, is saying, that was David, you know, and David was fine, but I'm actually even more important than that. I get to do what David did, but I have even more reason to do it. And you see this at the end of his response in verse 27. He says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So then he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So priests in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, were given permission to do work on the Sabbath. They've got to do the work of offering sacrifice in the temple. David was given an exception to act as a priest to eat the bread of the presence. Jesus is saying that the Sabbath is made for us. We're not slaves to it. It is for us. There are exceptions made even in the Old Testament to you know, not doing any work on the Sabbath. David is one example, and he brings that up. But then he says this, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And that language of Son of Man is a very important um, title for Jesus in Mark's gospel that refers us to the book of Daniel, which has this prophecy of the Son of Man, who is, 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 is the Messiah. So he is saying, in a very Jewish way, to the Pharisees I am the Messiah I am coming to fulfill the role of the Son of Man I am Lord of the, I created the Sabbath, I can break the rule of working on the Sabbath just like David did okay, so this is an example of a passage from Mark's Gospel where Jesus' divine identity is definitely there but you've got to see some things to be aware of it right? Um, so this is, it's not Jesus saying, I am God, but it is him saying, I am God. If you know the story of David, if you understand the laws of the Sabbath, if you know, you know, uh, the, the, the story of David and the image of the Son of Man from Daniel, okay? So when you know those things, which the Pharisees definitely would, you hear this response of Jesus, and you go, oh, wow, he's saying something stunningly important, stunningly significant here. Okay, so this is one example. I want to take now a look at another passage. This is from uh, chapter 4 of Mark's gospel, uh, which is the story of the calming of the sea. We're going to start here in Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 35 to the end of the chapter. So it's 35 to 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them, just as he was in the boat. And the boats and other boats were with him. And a great storm of wind arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care if we perish? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why were you afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? All right, so this is another episode of Mark's Gospel where if you're just reading on the surface level, it may not be quite as clear uh, what what's going on, what's what's happening. Jesus is in a very real way, revealing himself as the Son of God, as the Incarnate Word, right? as a, the second person of the Holy Trinity. How is it that, that he's revealing himself? Well, what's really key, is this notion of who has authority over even the storms and—or the the wind and the sea. And this is hearkening back to creation, where there is, in the creation account, God putting order into the the world, right? That he takes out of the chaos and creates order. And here, Jesus is able to exercise the same sort of power over a storm— He calms it by his word, right? At his word, creation obeys him. That's very significant. That is something only God can do. There are other miracles, right, that that he may work, that people will have different reasons for. Well, I'm not sure if that was God or not. But to have obedience even of nature, just from his word, is a very, very strong mark of divinity, right? So this is one story where knowing creation helps us to understand who Jesus is in this moment. And we also have um, this this important uh, question of the disciples, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The question itself reveals to us Jesus's identity. So this is a way of the the... the the disciples asking a question that they know the answer to. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's God. Only God would be able to get the wind and sea to obey him. So we have here another story where there is this presence of sort of a, a divine identity underlying the text. It's not out in the open right there, but it is very close beneath the surface, okay? So Jesus is able to rebuke the sea and it obeys. And so we see this, this connection to creation. You also see a similar thing at work in the Psalms where uh, there, are, there are different Psalms that invoke, you know, the, the, the threat of destruction um, that God can bring about through the seas uh, and the, the order that he can restore. Um, through his own word as well. So this is just a, a, a very significant um, moment uh, where the disciples are seeing truly, you know, a divine uh, work at hand. There's another similar story um, that, that I want to go to, which is in Mark 6, and this is, uh, you'll, you'll see a very similar theme here where Jesus has power over the waters. So this is Mark 6. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had taken leave of them, he went up into the hills to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were distressed in rowing, for the wind was against them, or sorry, and he saw that they were distressed in rowing, for the wind was against him. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the winds ceased, and they were utterly astounded. This passage reveals another dimension that's not quite present in calming the storm when he's in the boat. So first of all, he's walking on the water. That's a a significant miracle, but there's also something important about passing by. It says he meant to pass them by. The language of passing by is very important in the Old Testament. God, the Lord, passes by Moses. He passes by Elijah. And so the idea that he meant to pass them by to a Jewish reader would evoke Oh, that's what the Lord does. The Lord sometimes passes us by, and he shows us his presence by the way that he passes us by. So think, for instance, with you know, when, when Elijah um, has just had his interaction with the prophets of Baal, and then he runs for his life, and he's hiding in the cave, and, he's, and, he, and the Lord is going to pass by. So seeing that notion of pass by is supposed to, to really evoke um, something of uh, you know, God's presence in the Old Testament, but there's something even more significant. In this second account, again, this is Mark 6, 45 to 51, we see Jesus use the language, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. When Jesus says, I am, in Greek, it's ego me." that is the name of God in the Exodus. I am. In the story of the burning bush, when God reveals his name to Moses, he uses the phrase, I am. Jesus here takes on the actions of God by, in, you know, in chapter 4, calming the sea, restoring order to the chaos, right? Here, walking on the sea, passing by, and then saying, I am, ego me, A Jewish reader would know this, right? Someone who knows the Old Testament would know, I am is a big deal. I am is the divine name. It's the word for Yahweh. It's the word that you sometimes in, in Bibles and English, it's it's Lord, but all capi- all, all caps. Often that means Yahweh, uh, the you know the divine name in the story of Exodus and the burning bush. So we have a link to creation, a link to Exodus, and just this power. I mean, just think of the cosmic power that it takes to have control over storms and sea, right? It's not, it's not merely a miracle. It's a miracle to heal someone, right? But it's a human person, and, you know, maybe they can be freed of a demon and whatever. There's ways to doubt. But to to calm a sea, to walk on water, those are things that the Lord does. And to say, I am, is to use the Lord's own name. In the Gospels, the I am statements are always very big. Jesus also uses the I am language, the divine name, in the story uh the the narration rather of the crucifixion of the trial um so jesus is before Pilate. this is mark 15 we're jumping into just to to show the i am again he is um being questioned and uh they they ask him uh have you no answer to make this is mark sorry mark 14 have you no answer to make um, what is it that these men testify against you? But he was silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the, of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, ego ami, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So what's the response to the priest when he hears, the high priest, when he hears this, I am, and son of man, which we talked about a second ago, uh, the, the prophet Daniel, you know, the Messiah is the son of man. The response is very telling. The high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So this is one of the things that's very difficult to ignore um, when you're looking carefully about how Jesus understands himself, who he presents himself to be in the Gospels even in the synoptics, even in Mark's gospel, which a lot of scholars will say has a very low Christology, right? Um, John has a high Christology, and all of that is built around, or most of that is built around dating and seeing Mark's gospel being much earlier than John's and having time for the community to develop their own ideas and to reflect on the resurrection or their sense of the resurrection or whatever it is. Remember the last episode I talked about the Gospels as biographies? When we we kind of pull back some of that, what we see is actually the text of the Gospel speaks really clearly, in a Jewish way, of Jesus' own self-presentation and self-understanding of He is the Lord, He is Yahweh, I am, ego Ami. All right, one more story um, where we see uh, Jesus revealing but also concealing in a little bit, um, and we don't have enough time to, to really get into the, to the uh, messianic secret, but revealing his, his divinity again. And this is at the transfiguration. So we're going to go to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, we'll start with verse 2, if you're playing the at-home game. Flip to Mark 9, verse 2, the transfiguration. So I'll read this story briefly and then offer a couple of comments. Okay. And after six days Jesus took with him... Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became glistening, intensely white, as no fuller on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were exceedingly afraid And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. The transfiguration. So what happens on this feast? It's very important. They're up on a mountain. Jesus reveals his his dazzling, you know, white clothes. And the the, the disciples are stunned, and then they they also see Moses and Elijah. What's the significance of Moses and Elijah? Well, I already talked a second ago about God passing by Moses and Elijah on a mountain, the mountain of Sinai. Um, And we have here Elijah and Moses again being on a mountain. This time, though, God does not pass them by, but he reveals his face. Moses and Elijah don't get to see God's face in the theophanies that they experience in the Old Testament, but here they see the very face of God in Jesus Christ. Their presence on a mountain is very significant because it's supposed to be shouting at us, this is a theophany, this is God revealing himself. In the Old Testament, you go on a mountain and there's a shadow or a cloud, smoke, fire, a voice, you know, those things kind of clue you in. Here, what's the big thing? There is a cloud, but the cloud's not the star. The star is Jesus emanating the the, the divine brilliance from within him in the transfiguration. The apostles are transfigured, transfixed by this this, uh, reality, and Moses and Elijah are there to see it. And then there's the cloud, right? And so the, the presence of the cloud would point back to Old Testament theophanies that Moses himself and Elijah had been present for, and... The cloud speaks. It says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So we have the voice of the Father confirming the identity of the Son as being the Son of God. Right, so this is a, a, a moment uh, where it's difficult, it might be impossible, to explain it in any other sort of way other than Jesus is showing to his disciples who he really is. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of the Father the transfiguration, Jesus is the one giving off the light, right? He doesn't have to get it from someone and then give it to them, right? So it's sort of like Moses goes up the, the mountain, um, you know, in, in the Old Testament, and the people have to stay down, and there's a light coming from above that's not Moses, and Moses is sort of, you know, has, has to be careful about where he looks, right? He doesn't get to see all of the divine brilliance. Here, Moses is seeing the light but it's coming not from above jesus but from jesus himself so this is a, a powerful theophany where we see jesus revealing himself and being revealed by the father as the son so these these episodes with jesus demonstrating that he's the lord of the sabbath with the story of the bread uh, the, the the eating of the grain on the sabbath uh, his calming of the storm his walking on the the water Uh, and the transfiguration are are all sort of different moments where Jesus shows in the Gospel of Mark an awareness and a self-understanding of his divine identity. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh, right? He's God. And what I want you to to really just kind of take away from this is this isn't the only place, these aren't the only locations that, that you see this. You see this maybe more clearly in the resurrection, right? But Throughout the gospel, there are some more direct places where Jesus is trying to tell his disciples this, and there are some places where it's a little bit more below the surface. But probably the most significant in terms of just like one key claim is when Jesus uses the language of I am to refer to himself. And you see this in the calming of the storm when he's with the disciples, and that's earlier in the gospel, and then Later in the gospel, when he is before the, the trial, he responds, I am, and you will see the Son of Man. Again, pointing back to the prophet Daniel. And when he does that, what does the high priest's response? He tears his robe and he says, what more need do we have for testimony? You have heard the blasphemy yourself. And so it's a very important question, you know, if the high priest just hears Jesus saying the words, I am, and it doesn't mean anything, then why the charge of blasphemy? Why tear his robes and say, we don't have any more need for testimony? You just heard the blasphemy yourself. He's using the divine name to identify himself because that's who he is. And It's the Pharisees that actually finally interpret him correctly. This is one of the things we'll see when we talk about, you know, uh, we'll do an episode on just the disciples and and Mark's gospel. They don't always get what's going on. Here, the Pharisees at at the the crucifixion, you know, at the trial, the, the high priest gets it right. He's saying he is God. So a gospel is supposed to be a biography. We talked about that in our introduction episode. In this episode... Then if it's a biography, who's it a biography of? It's a biography of Jesus. Then who is Jesus? Well, what is the text telling us? It's telling us he's the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the incarnate Word of God. So what does that mean for us? It means we need to follow him. So I hope that you've enjoyed this first uh, little episode into uh, looking at the Gospel of Mark and that you stick around for the ones to come. Our next one is going to talk about urgency of uh, the urgency of the gospel in Mark. The immediacy, the concern, the fast-paced, how critical everything is in Mark's gospel. So I hope that you enjoy uh, this episode and that you stick around for the next one. Thanks.